Good evening. Tonight's lecture is entitled The Golden Age of Spain. We discussed last lecture Rav Sadigon, the personality, Rav Sadigon, the individual who took on the Karaites and was really the first one who successfully put them in their place and that was really the beginning of the end of the Karaites. With the death of Rav Sadigon in 942 of the Common Era, the period of the Gaonim of Babylonia was almost over. It would officially end in 1038. The great period, what you call the period of the Gaonim of Babylonian Jewry, ends with the death of Rav Haigon in 1038. By 1038, many Jews had left what was formerly had 80 to 90 percent of world Jewry for hundreds of years. The Babylonian Empire, that, which, is, which was eventually under the, after the Sassanids, conquered by the Muslims, and then moved into North Africa and begun to move into Europe. What were the reasons for the change of events in Babylonia? The change of events, why Babylonian Jewry started its decline and ended very quickly from its, from its preeminent uh, status amongst the Jewish people. First and foremost is that Babylonia was always the center for hundreds of years, from the time of almost the destruction of the second temple to a thousand years, approximately a thousand years later, it was the center of Torah study. The reason why Babylonia was so important was because of the great yeshivas which we had discussed pre- previously of Surah, of Pumpedisya. These yeshivas had thousands of students and Jews throughout the ancient world would send their queries to these yeshivas, would ask questions to these yeshivas. Moreover, besides the decline of these yeshivas, the economic world, the world of commerce, the world of trade, by the 9th, 10th century had left the Middle East and really had moved towards Europe. The, the, the world of commerce, the new opportunities, trade, the place of great trade, became Europe. And Jewish being involved in trade is not a new thing. The Jews went where the money is. And Jews started to follow, you know, it's unbelievable, with the 49ers, came the Jews to San Francisco, came the Jews to California. The Jews were traveling along to figure out where they can trade, where they can be involved in business. And Iraq, Babylonia really, by the 10th century, was not the same, uh, not the same promise, mostly because of civil wars, but also because of the new realities of the world, that Christian Europe became a, a little bit more developed, and the Muslims had had a foothold in Europe, and believe it or not, even though the Muslims were constantly fighting with the Christians, at the same time, they were trading with the Christians. Since the Muslims had entered Europe, there was a tremendous overlap of trade. The Jews were always the best intermediaries for that trade because Jews were able to speak the same language wherever they went and they had common ground wherever they went. So the bridge between the Muslims and the Christians in Europe would be the Jews. So the Jews would start to go to to those areas and we'll see soon Spain will become first and foremost uh, where the Muslim world will meet the Christian world because of trade 
as well as, as we'll see, that these areas become centers of Torah. So due to the economy, heavy taxation by the Arabs, as we mentioned the last, uh, two lectures ago, that the Arabs had a special tax on Jews called jizya, which made it more difficult to make a living. Jews went into trade and they, they started to go throughout the world. But before that, there were two great sages. The first was Rav Haigon. Anyone who studies the Talmud, Jewish law, has heard of Rav Haigon. Rav Haigon lived from 939 to 1038. That's 99 years. I mean, 99 years, a thousand years ago, that's a long life for a thousand years ago. He lived for nine, from 939 to 1038. He was the last of the great Goonim of Pumpadisio. Rav Haigon had good genetics because his father was the Rosh Hashiva of Pumpadisa as well. And he took over for his father. But now he had good genetics from the mental standpoint and the nurture standpoint, but his father lives to 98 years. <laughs> so, Rav Shriragon, who was famous for giving a, 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 the, a list of all the sages going back to Moshe and showing how the Torah was passed from generation to generation. Rav Shrira was Rav Hai's teacher. Rav Shrira lived to 98 years old. When Rav Hai was 48 years old, he became the second in command of the Yeshiva in Pumbadisya. 48 years old, he became the Av Beisdin, the, the, which means the head of the Beisdin. Rav Shrira Gon was the Rosh Yeshiva. Rav Haigon was the Avbezdin. The, the, um, uh, now, as mentioned, you have to imagine what Pumbadisa was like. Pumbadisa was like this great center of learning with hundreds of times thousands of students studying there. And literally questions from throughout the world. Even in Rav Haigon's time, he'll be getting questions from Spain, from Morocco, certainly from closer places like the Persian Empire and um, uh, uh, and Egypt and Israel, but throughout the world, from ancient France, you, you, today's world, you imagine, you know, people ask some of the sages in Israel, a Sephardic Rav will ask Ravavadi Yosef in Israel. So, Ravavadi Yosef doesn't have email, he'll call somebody to call somebody to get to Ravavadi Yosef. But in those days, if you're asking from Spain to Babylon, it took months. It took months. And yet, Rev Haigon was the center of all of these, these, these questions. That's why Rev Haigon would eventually be called the last of the Goonim, but first in importance. He had authority throughout the ancient world. Now, at the end of his father, Rev Shri Ragon's life, uh, uh, a, a, an event happened that shook them both up. They were accused falsely by the Caliph of Baghdad of treason. In those days, if you're accused of treason by the Caliph of Baghdad, you wouldn't buy life insurance. No one would sell it to you. It didn't look too good for a higher of Shira. Eventually, they were acquitted. But really, Rav Shira was an elderly man at the time. He was, it was at the end of his life. And he said, he didn't want to, he, he wanted to give over the, um, the rulership to his son. So in his lifetime, Rav Shira appointed Rav Haigon as the next Rosh Hashiva of uh, Pumbadisa. And they said that they read the Haftorah that week 
there's the, the Haftar of course, Shlomo Salman became the king of all of Israel in David's lifetime. So they read that Haftorah and instead of saying, and Shlomo sat on the throne in the life of David, it said, and Hai sat on the throne in the life of Shrira. So he actually took over as Rosh Hashiva in his, in, in, in his lifetime. If Haigon wrote numerous works, some of which we have today, many of what we do, of what we do not. He wrote Shari Shavuos or Mishpat Shavuos which is on the laws of oaths. He wrote Sefer Mekach Memkar, which is on the laws of purchases. Um, I mean, the fact these books are so advanced at the time, you know, when, when most of the ancient world had no laws on, on, on dealing on transactions and purchases, the Jewish people had extremely technical, advanced laws. What happens? Buyers' rights, sellers' rights, purchasers' rights. Who who who? Who, who had, at what point is the contract fulfilled? At what time, at what point could you, could you go back in the contract? Here laws on Isra Vahetar, things on Shechita, on all of Tanakh, Mishnah, and Gemara. He also wrote many Piyutim. And if you look at, in the, in the literature, his contemporaries and generations after, Rav Haigon is called Rabban Shal Yisrael, the teacher of all of Israel. And he, he was the last Yeshiva Pumbadisa. His father-in-law, who, since he lived for 99 years, was almost like, it was his same age. <laughs> his father-in-law was the same age as him. Rav Shmuel Bar Chafni was the Rosh Yeshiva of Surah, the other great Rosh Yeshiva, the other great Yeshiva in Babylonia. And Rav Shmuel uh, Bar Chafni lived from 969 to 1034. His father was the chief rabbi of Fez in Morocco. And Roshul wrote extensively as well. We have nothing left of his. Right? We have to remember this is the ancient world. He wrote in Arabic firstly. Or in Arabic because that was the la- language of the masses. And if, in, in, if it was written in Arabic, if it wasn't translated, it didn't stand the test of time. One work which passed down was his introduction to Talmud, which was 150 chapters. So a small part of it was taken by Shmuel Hanagid, who we'll speak of soon. And that was still in existence. But Shmuel Bar dies a couple years uh, before his son-in-law. And with the death of both of Shmuel Bar and of Haigon, the end of Babylonian Jewry comes. Really, with, the, the de- with their deaths, the yeshivas never really stick, stick around. Surah and Pumbadisya, these yeshivas which were around for 800 years, are, are, are pretty much dissipate and are gone with history. And the remarkable thing is, is here you had a golden chain of tradition. You had sages, Tanayim, Amorayim, the sages of the Talmud, Go'onim for hundreds and hundreds of years. And within a generation or two, it disappears, due to numerous factors. But yet, the study of Torah continued to flourish without a break. And moved, we'll see in a minute, to Spain, and to North Africa, and to Egypt. And this, of course, is a remarkable thing in Jewish history. Here you had Babylonian Jews. You know, we, there's a dafyomi every morning in the shul. People never, people always, what about the Babylonian Jewry? I mean, there will be Jews in Iraq till 1948. There was a significant population. But Iraq would not be the center of the Torah world anymore. Okay, even at the time of the Ben Ishchai, who was a great rav, it was nowhere comparable to other centers of Torah. You had a great rabbi here or there, but it was not where the yeshivas were it was not the center of learning. It would leave Jewish history. 
So you would imagine with the, with the demolition of uh, Babylonian Jewry, it would have been a tremendous setback to the Jewish people. But the Torah says that the Torah will never leave the mouths of the Jews. And as Babylonian Jewry comes kind of like with the end of the Holocaust, you can imagine with all these Lithuanian and Polish yeshivas slammed shut by the Nazis, you, if you were a sociologist, you would say, this is it. And here in America and in Eretz Israel today, you have yeshivas of thousands of students. Hey, when, one, when one candle is extinguished, another candle is lit. And that's really what happens. How does the Torah leave Babylonia and spread to the, the rest of the world? There is a story, and this is recorded already in the 12th century by the Ravid, of Ram Ibn Dawid, who I spoke about the last class, in the Sefer Kabbalah. He brings the following story, which is recorded in other works as well. And that is that the story of the four captives. I'm not sure if anyone heard the story. It's a famous story. I learned it as a little boy in school. But it's a story of the four captives. Some people say it didn't have exactly the way it is, just more, um, you know, an illustration. But there's no question, to a large extent, this is what happened because it's historically backed by many, many other sources. And that is in, in a, approximately the year 1000 of the Common Era. A ship left Italy to go to, from, uh, from the city of Bari in Italy in order to, set, to sail together to a, to a different city in the Mediterranean where a mutual friend was getting married. And there were four great rabbis on the ship. Their names were Rabbi Shemariah, Rabbi Chushiel, Rabbi Moshe ben Enoch, Rabbi Moshe ben Enoch had his wife and his son Enoch on the ship. And the fourth ra- rabbi we don't know. Now in those days, the seas, especially the Mediterranean, were infested by pirates whose business was it to steal ships. Now, Muslims historically, you know, we think today, who are the famous pirates? Somalia. You read every, if you look at the news, every once in a while, they're, they're, they're pulling not only small ships off the, off the Horn of Africa, or near Africa, they're pulling American ships, <laughs> European ships, like cargo ships, humongous cargo ships, they're pirating these ships. We know that America, the United States, went to war. The first war that this country went most people don't know American history, but, that, but it was in 1801, 1803, was the war against the Barbary Pirates. After the first war, after the war, the American Revolution, was not the war of 1812 against Britain, but was a war against Barbary Pirates. Who was the Barbary Pirates? These were Muslim pirates from Tunisia, from Northern Africa, Morocco, Algeria areas, who were stealing American ships. And the minute Britain had taken off their protection from American ships, because until that point, America was under English protection, American ships were under attack. So America went to under John Adams to, to protect their ships. Well, the Muslims have a long history of pirates. They're not, they don't have a monopoly on piracy, just like they don't have a monopoly on terrorism, but they certainly were very active in terrorism and in piracy. If you look back, even in the 9th century, people will be amazed at what the Muslims did with their piracy. In the 846, in 846 of the Common Era, the Muslim raiders, pirates, got off into Rome and literally sacked the Vatican. Right? You imagine today the Vatican was bombed. The Muslim pirates ter- used to terrorize the Mediterranean basin. They got off, they stole ships. One time they actually got out 
sacked Rome and went to the Vatican and sacked the Vatican as well. In 9-11, Muslim pirates took over an area called Fraxinet, in a, in a fortress in Provence, which is southern France, and they shut all passes to the Alps. And so much so that the Bishop of Narbonne was unable to return to France from Rome. Muslim pirates um, used all the Balearic Islands for the, throughout the 10th century, Majorca, Minorca, all those islands. From 824 to 961, Arab pirates, Muslim pirates ruled Crete and also terrorized the whole um, Mediterra- Mediterranean. Um, Venice at one point had to get involved to protect the fleets. They were all over the Mediterranean. This was a fact of life in the Middle Ages of Muslim pirates. Well, these four rabbis, their ship was stolen by one of the fiercest pirates of of the 11th century, and that was Ibn Rumas. And he took over the ship. Now, he looks around the ship, he gets on the ship, the rabbit says, and he sees four rabbis with white beards. Now, you may think, oh, four rabbis with, with white beards, those are great, maybe get a blessing. You have holy people on the ship. He didn't think that at all. He saw four rabbis, white beards, around the 1,000 kamenera, he saw green dollar bills. He said, cha-ching, <laughs> I just did really well over here. We're going to sell these people to the Jews. Because they'll ransom. He knew the Jews would, would ransom. Jews, of course, pinyon shvum, would ransom their own. And he got four sages. And so, Ibn Nachmas went ahead and made a lot of money. And the first community he ransomed in them to, is he went to Alexandria, Egypt, and he offered Rabbi Shmaraya for sale. He requested a huge um, ransom, and the Jews of Alexandria paid the ransom for Rabbi Shmaraya. He basically looted Alexandria. Rabbi Shmaraya didn't stay in Alexandria because that was a weaker city at that time. We know historically... We spoke about previously, it was a huge Jewish city, but he went to Fostat. Fostat is old Cairo. Eventually, Rambam Maimonides would live in Fostat. That's because by the time Maimonides got there, Fostat was a developed area. Rabbi Shumarayo moves to Fostat. He becomes the chief rabbi of Cairo and of Egyptian Jewry and builds a yeshiva there. He did not want to go back onto a boat ever in his life, so there's no going back to Italy. It's a question where they originally from Babylonia or from Italy. But, you know, if you've already been kidnapped on the seas, basically wherever they got ransomed, they stayed. Because you're traumatized. It's not, you know, imagine being kidnapped by, by the, the arch pirate of the day. So he stayed and became the, the rabbi of Fostat. He builds a yeshiva there, and so begins a Torah center in Fostat. The next place that Ibn Rumas went was Karyawan. Karyuan, most even North African Jews have never heard of. In fact, I tested this theory just before. I went to Mrs. Simon, who grew up in Casablanca. I said, you ever heard of Karyuan? She said, what's that? I said, you never heard of it. It's one of the greatest Jewish centers of Torah ever. It was a city in Tunisia, which for hundreds of years had lived from the greatest ages. The next city where he went was Karyuan, where he sold Rabbi Chushiel. Rabbi Chushiel was also a great scholar. Of course, everything he went to because he knew he could get a high... The first sale was always a huge price. And he had no problem. He just went from Jewish center to Jewish center. At the time, these were mercantile centers and not Torah centers. 
He went to Karan, he sold Rabbeinu Chushio. Rabbeinu Chushio did the same thing. He opened the yeshiva. In fact, one of his students, and this is how we know the story, he corroborates the story, because he also brings this down, one of Rabbi Chushio's students is Rabbeinu Hanano. Anybody who studies the Talmud knows that on every folio of Talmud, on right next to the, to the Talmud, is Rabbeinu Hanano. He is a student of this Rabbi Chushio. He lived in Tunisia, in Kariwan, Tunisia. Rabbeinu Nisim, not the Ron, which we'll speak about later, one of the great Rabbeinu Nisim Goyim, it's called, he was also a student of um, Rabbi Chushio, who was in Kariwan. On went Ibn Nachman to Spain. Now, Spain at the time, and we'll speak about Spain at length soon, started to have a very large population of Jews. As mentioned, because Spain was at the crossroads of Islam and Christianity, and Jews were trading between the two. Spain, as we'll also see, would have relatively moderate Moors, Berbers, who ruled the country, who were generally tolerant of Jews in a world of general intelligence, intolerance. To Spain, Ibn Rahmas sold Ramesha. But before he did that, on the way to Spain, because it was a, a large trip to Spain, he started to observe Rabbeinu Moshe's wife. And she was a very fair, light-skinned, attractive lady. And he tried to seduce her. And he said, leave this rabbi, come with me, sell the seas, and live a good life. And he starts promising that I won't kill you, I won't sell you, I won't... You'll, you'll, you'll gain, you'll, you'll be, you'll, I'll give you wealth. And she spoke to her, now they speak in Arabic, she asked her husband, Ramesh, if I jump off the sea, will I come around, uh, alive the resurrection of the dead? And he said, yes, she jumped into the sea and committed suicide. Okay, now of course Ramesh and his son was on the boat, Enoch, were, were, were petrified and, uh, and mourned tremendously. But it brings down, at some level they felt that their mother sanctified the name of God, and they were, they were comforted, by that. Rabbeinu Maisha was sold to Cordova. And when he was sold, nobody recognized who he was as a sage. It was not really a learned place at the time, Spain. And Rabbeinu Maisha went ahead, he was called the captive. He wasn't known as a scholar, or as a sage. He was called the captive. The one who was freed. The freed captive. One day, he was listening to a shir by Rav Nosson, Rabbi Nathan, who was the, the head of the, of the, the, the chief rabbi of Cordova. And he corrected Rabbi Nathan after the class. He said, by the way, I think this is really the halacha. And he got to a discussion, and Moshe told him the halacha, and explained to the halacha. When Rabbi Nathan heard this, he said, I can no longer be the chief rabbi of Cordova, which is, as we spoke about last time, which at the time was the greatest city in Spain. I have to be the son of Moshe. And he pushed Rabbi Moshe, and Rabbi Moshe ended up being the chief rabbi of Spain. And this is how... Spanish Jewry begins its Torah study, which is a remarkable thing, because this is greatness in Torah. If you always look, Hillel, the same thing happened with Hillel. Hillel was not on the Basin, but they, they, uh, when they stepped down in order to put him on because of his a different diet, he's even greater. He, that's true Torah. It's not an almond power. Can you imagine Obama saying, ooh, I think this guy's better than me. He should be the president of the United States. No, it's not legal in this country. But can you imagine any leader, not, not Obama, any, I don't care, Republican, Democrat, British, Canadian, can you imagine any leader saying, well, I think they're more competent than me? When I went to say, could you imagine Joseph Stalin saying, ooh, Trotsky, 
you, you take over. I don't think so. Right, you have to imagine that is Torah say. It's an appreciation. It's not a question of me. It's a question of what's the best for this community. He puts Ramesha in charge. Ramesha, and we'll discuss it shortly again, was the generation of Chastai. He spoke about Chastai Ibn Shaput last week, two weeks ago. And that's how Cordova became the city of Torah of the generation because Ramesha came and built a yeshiva and the remarkable thing is and that's how Torah spread out of Babylonia wherever they want they will build a yeshiva because if you only have rabbis and you don't have Jewish education you don't have a future <laughs> so the way it is if kids can't learn if Torah is not studied just going to services is not enough the reason that Torah spread is because all these sages wherever they went they started places of study places of study when Elisha came to Spain, Jews had been there for generations. In fact, the history of Spanish Jewry dates back at least 2,000 years to the Roman rule. Approximately ready, 205 BCE, there are archaeological evidence of Jews in Spain. And we don't know that much about what Jews did in Spain. We know that Jews were involved in trade in Spain in the time of the Romans. We don't know that much. The first time that we really learn a little bit about the Jews in Spain is in the year 303. And how do we learn about the Jews in Spain in 303? Well, that's because by that time there's a tremendous Christian presence in Spain and they already had their first anti-Jewish decrees. And that was called the Council of Alvira. And look at source number one. Because you'll get a little bit of an understanding of the Jews of Spain based on source number one. These are, there were 80 canon, canons in this council of Arvira. Source number one. Number 16, canon number 16. Heretic shall not be joined in marriage with Catholic girls unless they accept the Catholic faith. Catholic girls may not marry Jews or heretics because they cannot find a unity when faithful and the unfaithful or joined parents who allow this to happen shall not commune for five years, which basically was the equivalent of complete ostracism in that community. You would be ostracized if, um, if, a, if a Jew married a Catholic, which I'm not upset about, by the way. Uh, but in their own minds, it was, a tra- it, it, was a, it was an anti-Semitic decree. Look at number 49. This is remarkable. They actually have to have a church, a canon on this. Landlords are not, uh, are, are not to allow Jews to bless the crops they have received from God and from which they offer thanks. Such an action would make our blessing invalid and meaningless. Anyone who continues this practice is to be expelled completely from the church. Apparently, the land people would ask the Jews, bless my land. They would, in fact, I heard of gifters at Saul say that when he was in Tells in Lithuania, they would stop, the Lithuanian peasants would stop the Yeshiva boys, bring them to their fields, and say, bless my fields. This was, even after all the Catholic laws, you can see in like the third century, the, the beginning, at the late third century, beginning of the fourth, that it was common practice to ask a Jew to bless uh, the land, which they came to ban, because of course it gave the Jews more than legitimacy. Number 50. If any cleric or layperson eats with a Jew, now that's already a, a far off, you can't even eat with a Jew, um, he or she shall be kept from communion as a way of correction. 78 is also although anti-Semitic in their own idea, as far as Jewish law, it's not a bad thing. 
If a Christian confesses adultery with a Jewish or pagan woman, he is denied communion for some time. If his sin is exposed by someone else, he must complete five years penance before he's receiving the Sunday communion. Well, these were all canons to separate the Christians from the Jews. Not necessarily hurting the Jews, but separation. But that would change. In the 5th century, the Visigoths, who were much more famous for sacking Rome, the Visigoths, well, they were Arian Christians. Now, when we discuss Christianity, I discuss the difference between Nicenean Christianity and Arian Christianity. Arian Christians believed that Jesus was a man. Kind of like Islam. That Jesus was a man who had prophecy from God. Whereas the Nicenean Christianity, which became dogmatic in the year 325, believed that Jesus was God. That the idea of Trinity. And as I mentioned then, they would duke it out for generations. You know, Christianity is dogmas. Even their core dogmas were voted on, manipulated, right, decided and changed by wars. Right? And we talk core values. Is what is God? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus not God? It was never decided on immediately. And these were Aryan Christians, the Viscoths. Right? Ultimately, the Franks, as I mentioned, would convert a lot of these uh, people around them. Charles, Charles Martel, of course, who would be the father of Charlemagne, would really um, be the pusher of it throughout Europe. But the Visigoths were um, Arians. When they took over Spain as a whole, immediately anti-Semitic decrees were put into place. Anti-Semitic decrees that no longer was it just separating the Christians, but Jews were restricted from many things in society. It would get worse. Because in 589 of the Common Era, the Visigoth king Ricard left the Arian sect and joined the Orthodox Catholic sect of Nicenean Christianity, of Trinity. And of course, that was under the Catholic Church in Rome. And he immediately put all of the Catholic um, anti-Semitic decrees, which he had discussed previously, into place in Spain. Subsequently, in 612 of the Common Era, at the Council of Toledo, now this is remarkable. If you think, you, everyone knows of the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, the Spanish Inquisition, 1492. Conversion or death. Right? That wasn't even that. Then it was conversion, expulsion or death. In 612, they didn't have a conversion, expulsion or death. In Spain, in 612, there were much fewer Jews, but the option was given conversion or death. Right? Scourging, mutilation, banishment, and confiscation of goods. Apparently they actually they had some option to leave, but banishment in those days, this was before Christopher Columbus and Chips, it was pretty much, you know, with limited choice. So under this Council of Toledo III, Jews were ordered to, cur- to convert to Christianity. Um, in 633, already the fourth Council of Toledo convened to address the problem of crypto-Judaism. Think about Murano's 15th century, 16th century, they had crypto-Jews in the 7th century. Those were Jews who converted merely to escape persecution. So, the 4th Council of Toledo opposed compulsory baptism, um, but it said that if a Christian would marry a Jew, then the kids would be raised Christian. After that, in the year 7 or 9, there was civil war in Spain between the Arian Christians and the Nicenean Christians, 
and the Jews were caught in the crossfire. Now remember when I talked about the coming of Muslims, the mixed bag, the mixed blessing, because at the time Spanish Jewry would have been forcibly assimilated. And I said that what Islam did is it caused a check on Christianity. It forced, it split the world. Well, in 711, just two years after the start of this internal Christian war in Spain, and the Jews were already ostensibly, forcibly converted, the Muslims conquer Spain. The Muslims, which were at the time, it was the Moors, which were a mix of Arab and Berbers, and if you don't know the difference between Arab and Berbers, you speak to some of North Africa, oh, they're very different. If you ask a Moroccan Jew, or a Tunisian Algerian, the Berbers are a different culture, a sect. I can't, it's like describing chocolate. You can't really describe them. They're a nomadic people. But you have to see that they are, they are certainly different than the Arabs. But they were also Muslims. So the Moors were a mix of Berbers and Arabs, all Muslims, of course, under, under General Tariq ibn Zayed. Okay? General Tariq ibn Zayed. He landed in a location called Jabal Tariq, named after him. Jabal Tariq, Mount Tariq, also now known as Gibraltar. Right? Now, the Tariq meaning, of course, the rock. Gibraltar, Mount Tariq, that's where he lands, and he has his name till his day. Gibraltar is where the, the Muslims start their conquest of Spain, and of course, as I mentioned, when we talk about the Arabs, they went all the way past the Pyrenees to France, and Charles Martel would, would force them back in 732, but he, uh, he conquers, quickly sc- conquers Spain. Look at source number two. This is Professor Montgomery Watts, who I quoted at length when talking about Jewry and Islam and the Babylonian Jews. It is a common misapprehension that the Holy War, Jihad, meant that the Muslims gave their opponents a choice between Islam and the sword. This was sometimes the case, but only when the opponents were polytheists and idol worshippers. For Jews, Christians, and other peoples of the book, there was a third possibility. They might become a protected group, dhimmis, paying a tax or tribute to the Muslims but enjoying internal autonomy. This was the case during those conquests. Now we'll see later that the original general moderate position of the Muslims would change over time. But the Jews... When they, when they came in, these crypto-Jews welcomed the Muslims almost like, you know, when the Americans reconquered parts of Europe, there were flowers to throw at them. The Jews welcomed the Muslims with open arms, open arms, so much so that, as the historians say, that the Jews of Toledo were the ones who opened the gates for the Moors to come. I mean, they opened the gates to Toledo to welcome these people. So much so was a Jewish support for these Moors, you have to imagine a fifth column, that the Moors, as they were advancing, they didn't come with, at first, huge armies. They, they kept advancing. They put the Jews in charge of Cordova, Malaga, Granada, Seville, and Toledo for a brief period of time. It was under Jewish authority. It means they knew that the Jews would be good allies. That's how enthusiastic the Jews were that the Moors were conquering Spain. They were embracing this with open arms. They were finally free from radical Christian anti-Semites who forcibly converted them. And they were living in secrecy, living in darkness. And here they were redeemed. They were, they, they were, they were set free. And well, as we'll see, that with under the, the, the Moors, Al-Andalusia 
was not only a great place for Jews to discuss at, at length, but because of the Jews, especially because of the Jews, it became the most populous, cultured, and industrious land in all of Europe for centuries. The Moorish Spain was the most developed, was the most profitable, was the most powerful part of Europe for a while. Okay? And look at source number three. This is an English historian, Martin Sharp Hume, not a Jew, writing in his book, The Spanish People. Side by side, with the new rulers, live the Christians and Jews in peace. The latter, rich with commerce and industry, were content to let memory, this the Jews, the memory of their oppression by the priest-ridden Goths, Goths sleep. In other words, the Jews moved on. You know, you always talk about the Jewish people, their success in America. You know many Holocaust survivors? We, don't, we never mourn. My, my own grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They didn't sit and mourn. They rebuilt. And you meet so many Jews today who post-Europe came to America and started over. The Jews didn't sit there and mourn. You see some minorities were afflicted and they're constantly mourning their previous status. They never advance. Jews go at, live. <laughs> right? We don't constantly, we, we, we live. And that's why when you have secular Jews who have Holocaust Jewry, that's a tragedy. If all of your Jewry is Holocaust Jewry, you know, it kills me. I'm not saying, listen, I, I grew up with the Holocaust in my blood. You know, I'm named after my two great-grandfathers who were killed in the Holocaust. I go with story after story, but that's not the essence of my Jewry. Imagine the Jewry is this world, right now, where I'm living, doing, not just sitting there mourning the past, but doing in the present. And because the Jews did in the present, that's where they're successful. Now, with the Moors, and this division in Europe becomes for the first time the terminology of Sephardic and Ashkenazi. Now next week, in two weeks, excuse me, the next lecture, we will discuss the House of Rashi and really the beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry as an entity by itself. But what is the difference between Sephardic Jewry? Because in Spain, Sephard literally means Spain. But we don't refer to Sephardic Jewry as only Spain. What's the difference between Sephardic Jewry and Ashkenazic Jewry? Besides... The, the, the liturgy of prayer. Well, Rabbeinu Bachya, even Pakudya, who we'll discuss at, uh, for a little bit in a while, he was a, the, the dying of Saragossa. He wrote a work called Duties of the Heart, Chovas Lavavot, Chovat Lavavot, which was actually translated by Judah Ibn Tibbet, who translated Maimonides' works, because he wrote in Arabic, which was the lang- language of the land, and in his Hakdama, in his introduction, he says the difference. This is in the 11th century defining a Sephardic Jew and an Ashkenazic Jew. He doesn't say it's a Jew who lives in Spain and a Jew who lives in um, in France. It's because there were many Sephardic Jews living in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria at the time, Babylonia, which is Iraq, and Persia. A Sephardic Jew is a Jew under Muslim dominion. An Ashkenazi Jew with a Jew under Christian dominion. And if you'll notice, all Sephardic Jews come from Muslim countries, and all Ashkenazic Jews come from Christian countries. And we'll see a large part of the differences come from the influences of the surroundings, people around them, and the schools of thought which developed as a result of the, the culture they live. But uh, you look wherever you go, Sephardic Jewry would be in Sephardic lands, in the Muslim lands, Ashkenazic Jewry is in Christian lands. And the beginning of Sephardic Jewry, therefore, 
will be much different as we know next week than Ashkenazi Jews. Because we'll see the Sephardic Jews had a very open society. And Ashkenazic Jewry starts in the House of Rashi in the dark ages of Christian Europe. These will have ramifications to our very day. That will continue on also. But it's important to note that at this time that we see the first beginning language of Sephardic and Ashkenazic. Until that point, it was one, everyone was in Babylonia together. There's no real defined Ashkenazic Jewry and there's no Sephardic Jewry. And by the way, if you look at the prayer books, it's hard to say that either were more correct, okay? They were very similar. I have to say, on some levels, Ashkenazic Jewry are more closer to the Middle Eastern Jewry, Babylonian Jewry, because ultimately, Sephardic Jewry liturgy today will take a lot of the Kabbalist, Kabbalistic things which came much later. When that, we look at the, the Siddur of the Rambam, it's not all, all the Ari's editions. How good was it? Was the golden age of Spain really good? Gold. Was it really great? So no matter what, according to all historians, you can't talk about Spain and North America today in the same dialogue. If you think that Spain was like America or Canada today, it was nothing close. Yes, the Jews were very successful, but Spain still had ingrained anti-Semitism. You were a dimmy. <laughs> a Jew was by nature a second-class citizen. There were laws of how a synagogue could be built and how it couldn't be built. In no way, form, or fashion was the golden age of Spain anything comparable to the freedom of religion, the freedom of um, rights that we have today in America. Now, it happens that proportionally the Jewish success was out of, way out of proportion. They dominated the middle class and were well represented in the upper classes. They were not part of the peasant class. In fact, if you look at Rabbeinu Bachya, his writings, he writes about the blessings of God. He says, here we are in the exiles and there are no peasants amongst us. Some in Spanish Jewry. They weren't the peasants. They were either middle class mostly and some of them were in the upper classes. That's who the Jews were. But there were still many, many rules, government sanctioned rules, based on Sharia law against them. And you were limited what you can do. Jews live separately. Yet, if you look at historians, for example, Maria Rosa Menachel is a professor at Yale. She wrote a book called um, The Ornament of the World. And in it, she claims that tolerance was an inherent aspect, aspect of Andalusian society. And definitely, the Jewish dimmies, although they were dimmies, made the Jews in, Span- in the Christian lands look persecuted and afflicted. They had tremendous freedoms, tremendous opportunities that, that the, the, uh, the Jews in the Christian Europe did not have. And even Jews in other parts of the Islamic lands, lands did not have. Look at source number four. This is Bernard Lewis, who is considered by, by most today the foremost expert on um, Islamic history. He is a professor of eminence and Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. The claim to tolerance now heard from Muslim apologists, and more especially for, from apologists from Islam, is also new. It is only very recently that some defenders of Islam have begun to assert that their society in the past accorded equal status to non-Muslims. No such claim is made by spokesmen for resurgent Islam. And historically, there is no doubt that they are right. Traditional Islamic society neither accorded such equality 
nor pretended that they were doing so. Doing so. Indeed, in the old order, this would have been regarded not as a merit, but as a dereliction of duty. It would be against the Quran. How could one accord the same treatment to those who follow the true faith and those who willingly, willfully reject it? This would be a theological as well as a logical absurdity. What Bernard Lewis is attacking is the Muslims who say, well, if you live in our lands, like the Cordoba Project today, right? Cordoba Project in Manhattan, then what do they say? Look at Cordoba. We Muslims, we know how to be tolerant. Now, unquestionably, that's not true. Jews were not equals, and neither were Christians under even the most moderate, tolerant Moorish society. They still were second-class citizens. They, they still had laws against them. So it says, Bernal Lewis is not saying it was in a golden age, relatively speaking. But don't dare say that they were equals. This is not a freedom of religion. There was no freedom of expression. A Jew couldn't say what he wanted to a Muslim. A Jew couldn't do what he wanted to a Muslim. A Jew couldn't even go to court against the Muslim, as I mentioned. And they certainly had status as second-class citizens. We'll see that they couldn't dress like Muslims. They couldn't do certain things like Muslims. So to say that they were like Muslims is preposterous. Again, the Jews were economically and intellectually very high classes. Right? They were very successful. But they had, they were limited. Right? They were blocked in to certain things, which, you know, at the same level, you know, I was once reading about um, Hollywood Jewry, you know, secular, of course, Hollywood Jewry, were very, very successful. But at the same time, they couldn't get their kids in half the private schools in Los Angeles in the 40s, 50s, and 60s because they had no Jews at rules in these schools. You know, whether they were open or covert, the, the WASPy private schools still didn't want them. Here, they didn't have to be covert. It was open. Yes, you're a successful doctor. Yes, you're a successful lawyer, but you're still a Jew. You still have to dress differently. You still couldn't do, you know, take advantage of Muslims. There were serious built-in laws. Mark Cohen, who is also a professor at Princeton, he stressed this point as well, but he, he does also stress that yes, Jews were second-class citizens, but they were much better shaped than anywhere else in the world. And that's why this is called the Golden Age of Spain, and rightly so. Meaning, relative to that world, the world of the Middle Ages, this was as good as it got. Hey, this was as good as it gets. Now, Bernard Lewis then points out that these Jews had a tax called jizya, which we mentioned more than once, and he contends that the tax of jizya was not only an anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim, anyone who's not Muslim, but it was a way of showing that you were subordinated to Muslim society. That no matter who you were, you still had to pay that jizya tax, meant that you're always, that you're always, by the way, taxes you see to, even to our day, <laughs> on ramifications, right? The jizya tax is a reminder that you are not special. You are a second class citizen. It's a tax that only non-Muslims paid. What was Jewish life like in Islamic Spain? Well, the Jews actually lived in their own neighborhoods. Uh, as a culture as Jews were, and we'll see that the Jews were very, very close, especially with the upper middle class of Spain, Jews were in that society. They had less to do with the peasants of Spain, of Moorish Spain, but they were well-versed and well-acclimated um, into the upper-class society of Spain. And we'll learn in a couple of weeks from now that that will have ramifications in the future as far as assimilation, serious ramifications as far as assimilation, because they were very, very, very well 
set up in their society, but the Jews lived in their own walled areas called Aljamah. They had their own administration, they had their own Bati Dinim, they had private uh, autonomy on Jewish courts. The Rabbanim, the Rajba, the Rosh, the Rivash, the, Rabbi, the Rif, they were all Rabbanim in Spain, and all of them would adjudicate their own laws. Now this was great for the Jews, because we were obligated by Jewish law, not Gentile law. It's also great for the Muslims. It, gave, it took their court system a lot, 10-15% of the population, out of their court system. It freed up Islamic courts um, as well. The influence of Islamic culture was significant. As mentioned, all of the major works were in Arabic, because the Jewish people all spoke Arabic. The language of lectures, the language of study, was in Arabic. In certain places, they even prayed in Arabic, although that was uncommon. The Jews in, in Spain would wash their feet and their hands upon going into the synagogue. That's washing your feet and hands was common in Muslim society. Um, moreover, if you ever listen to Sephardic music, it sounds very, very similar to Arabic music. A lot of the music, the tunes, were came from the Arabs. They dressed like the Arabs. The Moors. If you ever look at Ravadi Yosef, all the, the Sephardic clothing, that was how Arab, great Arab dressed. It was, it was a change on it. Jews couldn't wear green and white. Those were Islamic co- co- colors. Jews couldn't wear um, they were, uh, fine clothing such as fur and silks. And, and, right? Can you imagine being the most wealthy Jew? You can't wear fur or silk. They make a difference. Those were those were garments only for Muslims, but they did follow a lot of the Arab dress. They, they, the the main center of the Jewry. Um, now you don't see this in Babylonia. You see that yeshivas were. But in Spain already, you see the main center became the synagogue. There were hundreds of synagogues in Spain. Hundreds. For example, Cordova and Granada in, in, the, in the 10th century each had 6,000 Jews. They all had two dozen synagogues. Um, Toledo, which had less than 4,000 Jews, had 11. And the synagogues were not just areas of prayer, but like contemporary they were places where people met up. They were social centers. They had a social hall, places where people communicated. It was a Jewish binding place. Moreover, Shabbos in, and this, as I should mention, the synagogues throughout the Muslim countries were very, they looked, they had to kind of, you know, zoning laws according to the Muslims, obviously no figures of humans there. That's like a no-no in Islamic culture. It could be a no-no if it's protruding Jewish culture, Jewish law as well. No figures of humans. There were more plain, more simple. Unlike, we'll see the synagogues in Christian Europe, where you had huge cathedrals. Huge cathedrals, were, which were ornamental and beautiful. So you would have huge Jewish synagogues like the Christian. The Muslims did not tolerate that. You don't find any ancient beautiful synagogues in almost anywhere of the Muslim lands. You don't go to, you know, ancient Babylonia or Iraq and Baghdad and find beautiful synagogues or in Persia. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Morocco didn't have big beautiful synagogues. But you do find big beautiful synagogues in France and Germany and countries like that because that was tolerated and encouraged in those, in those lands. The main center of Jewish um, study 
culture, as I spoke about it two weeks ago, at first was Cordova. And that was because of Chistai ben Ibn Shabrut, who I spoke about. And as I mentioned today, Moshe starts a yeshiva in Cordova, and Chizdai was the, um, the advisor. He was the chief in command in Cordova, as I mentioned. He wrote the letters to the Khazars. The Chizdai letters were the letters written from Spain to the Khazar kingdom, which we, went, which we read at length last time. So at first it starts in Cordova. And the achievements were immense. Not only did the Jews, were the Jews affected by the Muslims, but all of Muslim society was affected by the Jews. And that's what we'll discuss in a minute. But after Cordova, I spoke about Cordova last time, the next great leader, because Chizdai was this amazing leader who supported Menachem ben Saruk and Dunish ben Laprat, as I mentioned, the two great scholars of grammarians and poets who Rashi quotes all the time in his commentary on Chomish, was Shmuel Hanagid. Shmuel ibn Nagarila. Nagarila in, I'm sure my Arabic is off, but Nagarila in Arabic means prince. Shmuel Hanagid, Samuel the prince, was born in 993. Shmuel corresponded with Rav This is how you see Spain was already on the map with Shmuel Hanagid. Therefore, when Rav dies, Spain is right there. Spain is ready to take its place. Shmuel Hanagid was a student of Rabbi Enoch. Rabbi Enoch, as I mentioned, was the little son of Moshe on the boat. He took over his father's yeshiva in Cordova. And in 1013, there was a civil war in Cordova. Shmuel Hanagid was 20 years old. The Muslims, and we'll see soon, that's how they lost Spain, were constantly fighting amongst themselves. Now, if you fight amongst yourself in Muslim lands, well, you have nothing to worry about, but when they fought in Spain, they were right next to the Christians, and the Christians would conquer them because of their internal fights. In turn 13, there was a civil war in Cordova. The Jewish center of Cordova gets wrecked along with the city, and Shmuel Hanagan and his friends all run to Granada, to Malag in particular. And Shmuel Hanagan ends up being the chief advisor to the visor. And the visor is basically the prime minister of Granada. And the visor answers to the caliph, which is the president, the chief in charge of Granada. And for years he's helping out this visor. Well, one day the visor gets old and he starts getting ready to die. And Caliph Habus, who's the caliph of Granada, which is now the most powerful caliphate in Spain, he tells his visor, what am I going to do without you? I've had your advice for years. You've been so helpful. What could I do without you? So he, he says, I want you to know all of my advice is because of some Jew named Shmuel. If you put him, you, you know, he knew who Shmuel was. If you put him in charge, you'll be okay. Shmuel Hanagin, then he gets rise, raised up to be the, the visor, like, kind of like Joseph in Laxus Prussia. He ends up being the visor of Granada, which is the most prominent caliphate at the time. And of course, he became the patron of Jews. He himself was a communal rabbi. He was a sponsor of many yeshivas um, as well. He was the most powerful political Jew in 15th century since Mordechai was in Shushan. Okay, you had, literally had a Jew in the, in the Gentile kingdom as a number two person in the most powerful Islamic entity, the most powerful part of Europe, Granada at the time, as a number two in charge. And not only was Shmuel Nagin a communal rabbi, a scholar, a, 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 a supporter of Torah, 
but he was also a general. He was, they, they have many, many letters of his war battles. He was a general of the army of the Granada. He was a true Renaissance man at all um, levels, and he was a brilliant man. As I mentioned, Shmuel Anagid, he published Shmuel ben Chafe's Introduction to the Talmud, what, was, what, we had, what, we had, what we had of it. Shmuel Hanagid, they bring us a famous story, he was once walking actually. Now, if you want to see what, to be a Jew, he's the number two person in Spain. The number two person in Spain. Number two person probably in the world at some level. Okay, he's a number two, he's an advisor to the Caliph of Granada. And he's walking on the street with the Caliph. And the Muslim merchant opens his mouth to Shmuel Nagin and says, You Jew! Now, can you imagine having a chutzpah to do that to uh, the Russian czars in the 19th century? They'd kill you in a second. So, in fact, the caliph, who had permission, said, Shmuel, let's have him killed. Shmuel, let's have him killed. So, you have to imagine, even here's the number two, you can still have a Muslim merchant scream out at him something. But Shmuel, Shmuel told the caliph, give me a week, I want to change the way he talks. A week later, they passed by again, and the, the, this Muslim merchant was praising you, such a tzaddik, Shmuel, you know, you know, thank you so much for, for walking by, could you bless me? The caliph looks at Shmuel and said, what did you put a curse on him? You, you give him a, 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 a cantation? I mean, how, what happened then? Last week he's, he's using foul language, he's, he's blessing you. So, he, the famous thing, Shmuel told him, not merely have I cut out his bad tongue, but I'd give him a good one instead. And then during that week, Shmuel gave him presents. He was friendly with him. And he, so he told the caliph, anyone you're friendly to, and you can win over. It's always better than fighting them and killing them. That was his message to the caliph. If you want to be successful in life, don't just kill your enemies. Win them over instead. You'll be more successful. Um, Shmuel Hanagid died in the year 1055. But by the time he did, died, Spain was now the center of Torah. It had left Babylonia, and the center of Torah was now in Spain. He was mourned by Jews and non-Jews, and we'll see what happened um, a few years after the Granada. Jews excelled in many things in Spain. They were, you know, you look at America today, you can see that to an extent, but not even, even there, it's even more proportional. And today in America, you see the Jews' dominance in finance, in media, um, in sciences, in many areas you can see Jewish um, in, you know, brilliance around. Well, in, their, in those days, you could see Jews excelled in skilled crafts. They were tanners, metal workers, goldsmiths, silversmiths, and jewelers. Some of these things come over to our day. The Jews became diamond cutters. Well, when the Jews left Spain, eventually they ended up the, the Muranos in Amsterdam. Amsterdam, of course, became the Antwerp to this day became the diamond center. Jews were diamond cutters. Where did they start becoming diamond cutters? In Spain. They, from that time, we have, to this day, we are great diamond cutters. That started in Spain. And then what happens went to, to Antwerp, and, after, and eventually it spread to New York. I mean, the, the diamond markets are today. Israel is, was, for years, the number one diamond polisher country in the world. And that's because that trade has been passed down for generations amongst Jews. Jews excelled in sciences. Many of the most prominent Jews were doctors. Maimonides, Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Nisim of Gorona, Chazda ibn Shaput, they were all doctors. They were all 
doctors. Some of them were doctors for the, the heads of the sultans and the caliphs. Jews excelled in trade. As I mentioned before, Jews were the bridge between the Christian world and the Muslim world. They would go and trade. We'll talk about more of that in a future lecture. Jews excelled in scholarship. They excelled in Talmud. The great Talmudists were in Spain. The Ramban, Nachmanis, the Rif, Rabbi Al-Fasi, who had to leave North Africa due to uh, a false accusation. It went to Spain because Spain had become the center. The Rajba, the Ritva, the Ra'al, all of the great Talmudists were there. The Avram Ibn Ezra, which is one of the great biblical commentators and poets was in Spain. Ibn ba- Rabbeinu Bachia, Ibn Pakudya, who wrote the duties of the heart. Chovas Lavavos, which I mentioned. To, their, to this day, it's a classic. The, the Stifler, for example, said that a Jew who learned duties of the heart sees the world differently. Meaning, a Jew who learned the work and did it, it's a t- different Jew. A Jew's head's been opened up, you'll see a different tree, you'll see a different sunset, you'll see a different Jewish history. You have a different <coughs> perspective of the world. It basically, it's Duties of the Heart is a book, one of the, the top two or three Muslim books ever written, is Duties of the Heart. It's one of the most well-used um, books. It's a classic. It's translated by Feltham. If someone has not went through that book, then perhaps we should look at the world a little bit differently. It's a good investment of time. There was Judah Halevi, who perhaps personified the greatest poet, was the heart of Spain. Yehuda Halevi, who some people say was related to the Ibn Ezra, was the famed author of the Kuzari, who I mentioned in the last lecture, which was based off the story of the the Khazars. He was um, a student of a student of Ichastai's yeshivas, Ichastai's yeshivas, he saw the letters, and he wrote a dialogue between the Kaiser king and the Jewish rabbi, and in doing so, he spoke about the theology of Judaism, the passion of Judaism, the viewpoint of Judaism. It's also one of the classic works. This work was written a thousand years ago. Jews throughout the generations have studied it. Rabbi Huda Levi was a man of great charm. He had many friends. He was a poet. He wrote many of the poets and liturgy comes from Yehuda HaLevi, Judah Levi. He's famous for saying, though I am in the West, my heart is in the East. And he was West, he was in Spain, which is West of, of he ultimately moves to, to, to Israel, follows his dream. In fact, some of the kiddos that we talk about, the love of Israel, that we say on Tisha B'Av, were, were penned by Judah HaLevi. He dies kissing the ground, in Israel, as an Arab tramp, trampled on him with his horse, right? he kissed the ground. As he kissed the ground, and he came to Israel, an Arab trampled down on his horse. That was the, the the wish of Jews. In fact, many of those who are passionate about loving Israel to this very day study the works of the Kuzari, which really is filled with a passion, a love of the land of Israel. Poetry, indeed became very, very popular amongst the Jews in Spain. That was partially because of Islamic influence. You don't find the same focus on poetry in Christian Europe amongst the Jews. It was in the Spanish countries where at the time you had many Muslim poets using the lands, so the Jews kind of showed that we can do one better. <laughs> if you can do that, then we can do this. And they became really focused on poetry. There was the famous... Shlomo Ibn Gabriel. Ibn Gabriel was one of the famous Jewish poets. He wrote 400 poets, poems. He passed away at a young age at 37. Now, 
in talking about many people, Nachmanides and Nachmanides, it's worth it to mention that there was no such thing as a last name. Okay, the reason why we call Maimonides, Maimonides or Nachmanides, we can that name, there's no such thing as a last name. In fact, Spanish Jewry would only get last names 500 years ago. Like Yosef Caro, by his time he had last names. Until that point, there was no, Maimonides didn't have a last name. And Ramban didn't have a last name. Historically, Jews went by their father's name. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon is Maimonides. So Maimonides is, Maimonides is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Nachmanides is Rabbi Nachman, I don't know his father's name. Right? You would have everyone ben. If they were a Kohen, they were Rabbi Moshe ben David Hakoyen. Right? That's how Jews were called throughout the generations. For Ashkenazi Jewry, you don't find last names until almost 250 years ago when the Christian countries forced names on Jews to take a last name. And that's why you have all these kind of like last names, like a lot of them are colors or flowers, green, green is green, weiss, weiss, white, uh, bloom, blue, or, or flowers, bloom is a flower. You have a colors, you had, you know, fields, you had all kinds of, or cities, people took the last name in the cities, even in Spain, Toledano is a famous Jewish Spanish name. Toledano is Toledo. Um, Shapiro, Spires. They, they took the cities they lived in and used those as last names as well. The Jews were also, as I mentioned, heavily involved in trade and commerce, and they were the middle class. They were doctors, politicians, engineers, pharmacists, winemakers, translators, educators, bankers, astronomers, merchants, scientists, farmers, architects, and ambassadors. The Jewish people were the middle class of Spain. They were the professional class of Spain. And in fact, even when the Christians would take over the Iberian Peninsula for several generations, they depended upon the Jewish people to run these middle classes. Um, As Russian Jewish historian Leon Polakov, Leonel Leon Polakov, making sure, Jews enjoyed great privileges and their communities prospered. There was no legislation or social barriers preventing them from occupations or commercial activities. In other words, even though you were a second class citizen, the unique thing about Sebain at the Moorish period is they can do whatever they want. All occupations were, were open. Many Jews migrated to areas newly conquered by Muslims and established communities there and they became extremely powerful. How did this golden age end? Well, immediately upon conquering Spain, the Islamic kingdoms started to fight amongst each other. And what they did is, they did a very foolish thing. They broke up to a state system, to a caliph system, but they had no unity. You have to imagine, if there were 50 states in the United States of America, and they'd be separate states. Like, the United States would take over, and all of a sudden, split up at the states. You'd be a lot more vulnerable. You know, Delaware is nice and powerful when it's came to the United States. You take Delaware by itself, I think that they can fall to many a country. Hawaii is nice and powerful, but Japan would have taken it over. This was before it was a state. And so what the Christians would end up doing is knocking off Islamic state by state separately. They, because they didn't have unity amongst themselves, they fell to the Christian reconquest, the reconquista of Spain. This century's battle started to put a pressure on the Muslims themselves. And the Muslims felt under duress. 
And because they were under the rest, they became less amicable to the Jews. In fact, the first major pogrom in the Muslim world happens in Spain in 1066 in Granada. The son of Shmuel Hanagid, who took over his father's position, was massacred in Granada with 4,000 Jews in one day by the peasants of Granada. And with that, you start to see sporadic attacks of Jews under Muslim Spain. That was because they felt less at, at heart. Interestingly enough, the Jews themselves, because of this, the Jews who opened the gates of Toledo were the ones who opened the gates of Toledo back for the Christians when they conquered back Toledo. Toledo was one of the first cities of Spain reconquered by the Christians in 1085. So we know that when did Granada fall? The last fort of Spain? The last part of Spain to the Christians? 1492. By 1085, the Christians had conquered Toledo, the great city of Toledo. And the Jews, 40,000 Jews fought with Alfonso IV of Castile to reconquer Toledo for the Christians. Little did they know what would happen to them in the future. And there were tens of thousands of Jews who fought outside of the Muslims. So you had Jews on both sides of the fence. But you can see already that it became less comfortable. Part of the reason was that by that time, the Berbers had conquered large parts of Spain. And the Berbers were much less tolerant than the Moorish um, the Moors, and it got much worse in 1148 when the Alamahads came in. When the Alamahads came, you have to imagine the, the Shah of Iran. Now, if you speak to Iranian Jews, Iran was never a great country for Jews. In the 19th century, they basically forcibly converted, converted Meshad. It was always dangerous, but at least it was tolerable. When the Shah would fall, and you'd have Khomeini take his place. Well, the world didn't become Tago, became Jews would move to Los Angeles. <laughs> Jews would move to other places. Well, this is, this is, this is a, greater, a greater change than Iran falling to Khomeini. Okay? When the Lomads, you can't even imagine the Shah falling down in, in Khomeini and the Revolutionary Guard of Iran taking in. The, the coming of the Lomads to Spain was, was the Khomeini plus. These were, rat, you know, Islam always has periods of radicals, okay? They have a constant history of moderates, radicals, moderates, radicals. It goes back and forth, you know, how seriously they don't take the Quran. Well, the Lomas were fanatical Muslims. When they came to Spain, they gave forced conversion or expulsion, and very often they didn't even have a choice of expulsion. They forcibly converted you. We'll learn later in a lecture about Maimonides, that's from the Ramadan's family, leave Spain. The Lomahads, as we mentioned in our Muslim class, would forcibly convert the whole Fez. Speak to Moroccan Jews, the Fez, historically, was a great city, 10th century, 9th century, 11th century, but in the 19th century, it wasn't. It was a Muslim city. Because all the Jews of Fez were forcibly converted by the Lomahads. These, you can't even imagine this is like, basically the equivalent plus of the Revolutionary Guard marching into Spain. <laughs> and taking over Spain. So Jews fled all of the southern and central Iberian Peninsula up to the Christians. And those that were left, many of them were forcibly converted. Eventually, in 1212, the um, Alomahads were, um, were, 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 were pushed out of, it, out of Spain. 
Many of them were by the Christians, some were by other Moorish groups, but Spanish Jew would never get back. Because even when the, in the Muslim parts, you would have restrictions against the Jews, no longer would you have moderate Muslims ruling Spain to the same extent. And in fact, throughout the Arabic world, after the 12th century, it's no longer a moderate Arab world. You find, after even the Granada ma- massacre, the raising of Jewish quarters in other places in North Africa, Egypt, Syria, Yemen, 13th, 14th century, you found Jews no longer being a, an accepted middle class, but pushed down into, into second class, being pushed into melas, which were essentially, essentially ghettos, and Spanish Jewry would never, under the Muslims, keep their promise. For a while, under the Christians, because they were needed, because they were needed, they would stay in prominence, but no longer would it ever be. We will discuss in a few weeks from now um, the Spanish Inquisition and what it was like to be in Christian Spain. N- the next lecture will be the House of Rashi in the beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry. But in some, there was a golden age of Spain. There was a golden age which was relative to the time in which Jews were second-class citizens. But, since they were always dimmies, they were never able to totally break that shackle. And as you saw with the Alomahads, in one second, they could be put at death's throw. So golden it was, but it was always tarnished. Tarnished golden it was. The Spanish Golden Age was always a time of lack of complete solace. It's where Jews were able to make it, but were never totally accepted. And you would have, perhaps, the greatest example of that is Judah Halevi, who said, although I'm, I, I am in, and he was alive during this, the, the golden, the gold, the, the gildest golden part of the Spanish age, a Jew always has to remember that wherever we are, if we're in the West, our heart is always in the East. Thank you.